Have you noticed how many businesses are short-staffed these days? Uh, have you noticed how many businesses uh, have help-wanted signs out front? I feel like I see this all the time everywhere I go, whether it's to a restaurant or some other kind of business. People are looking for workers. Have you seen empty shelves at the grocery store, or at least the pictures of empty shelves at grocery stores that have been floating around on the web? Have you placed an online order and got hung up with a long delay, which will be attributed to supply chain issues, no doubt? We're facing a crisis in our culture, a crisis of work. But I want you to understand, while this crisis was intensified by COVID and by lockdowns and by government stimulus packages... In America, the, the, the American work ethic has actually been in trouble for a really long time, long before COVID. COVID might have exposed this crisis and intensified this crisis even in certain ways, but the crisis goes way back. Our culture has been waging a war on work for a long time. It's not just that a Christian view of work and the dignity of labor has been lost as our nation secularizes. It's much bigger than that. It's an attack on work itself. Yes, there are many who you might say idolize work. They idolize work and career and the money and status that a career can bring. But there are also many who view the demand to work. That, that rule that we find in the scripture, that he who does not work should not eat. There are many who find that very rule oppressive. They don't want to have to work. They do not want to have to take responsibility for themselves. Millions of Americans quit their job last year. Uh, in fact, it was so great. Uh, so, so many people were quitting their jobs. They gave a name to this phenomenon. It became known as the Great Resignation. Now, certainly many of those people who quit their jobs were simply looking for another job. They were moving from one job to another. But we also now know that many of those people who quit their job did not go out to find a new job. They just dropped out of the workforce altogether. Part of what made this possible, of course, was massive government stimulus. Massive government stimulus that essentially amounted to government subsidized sloth. Here, we'll pay you not to work. We'll pay you more to not work than you would have made working. Government handouts in this way that confiscate money from some to give it to others very easily, very obviously undercut a work ethic. And this is an idea that's floating around throughout our culture, at least in earlier versions, the proposed so-called Green New Deal. One of the promises made, and at least the original version of the Green New Deal, uh, was a promise to provide economic security even to those who are unwilling to work. That's how it was worded. Uh, Government-provided uh, econo uh, government economic security even to those unwilling to work. A universal basic income uh, is under consideration, at least by some, in our political class. Many in our culture view work as a bad thing, as a negative thing. And if they can escape work or avoid work, they will do it. And they would like to see this 
freedom, freedom from work, uh, happen for other people as well. It's not just if you're unable to work, that's obviously a different kind of scenario. But if you're unwilling to work, you shouldn't have to. Work is viewed as a bad thing. And to force work upon people who don't want it or who are going to end up in jobs they don't like, well, that's just seen as an injustice. The problem, of course, the problem with this, obviously, is that someone has to pay the bills. There's no such thing as a free lunch or a free vaccine or a free COVID test or a free cell phone or whatever else the government might decide to give away. Somebody somewhere is paying for it, which is to say somebody somewhere worked for it. And what we're seeing in our society more and more is that society is productive Working members are subsidizing the lazy, unproductive members. And of course, the more you subsidize laziness, the more laziness you get. And this is certainly an issue in our day. There used to be a a great stigma attached to an able-bodied person who refused to take responsibility and work to provide for himself. But that stigma is largely gone now. And so many people in our culture believe if you don't feel like working, you should not have to. But the problem really is even bigger than this. Many Americans, even many American Christians, who continue to work, still do so without a solid understanding of the role work should play in our lives. And the result of this is going to unhealthy extremes, either expecting too much from work, maybe too much in the way of pay or too much in the way of fulfillment, or again, trying to minimize work and avoid it as much as possible, the I'm working for the weekend kind of approach to work. The problem with America today is not just a labor shortage, it's a shortfall in our understanding of God's purposes for our work. See, we have drifted from the Protestant work ethic that built our nation. And we've got to recover something like this rooted in the scriptures and in God's design for human life. Productivity is tied to purpose. But if you lose that purpose, you lose your productivity. We need to understand God's purpose in our labors, how God uses our work in our own lives and in the lives of others, how our work fits into his kingdom, into his kingdom purposes for history and even for eternity. Now, the whole Bible can help us in this. The whole Bible really is about this in a very real sense. The whole scripture can help us understand God's design for our work and the dignity of work. We need to know God considers ambition and the desire to achieve, to be good. There's such a thing as holy ambition, a holy drive to work, to succeed. Certainly all of that can be warped by sin, but the desire to work, to achieve, to be productive, to make something of your life through your work, that is a good and God-given desire. This desire to work, to work hard, and to enjoy the fruits of one's labors, it's all perfectly biblical. Ecclesiastes 2 says there is nothing better than for a man to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work, to find enjoyment in his labor. So this morning I want to walk you through the Bible's story of work, how God made man to work in the beginning, how work is part of what it means to be human, how sin has distorted 
that sin distorts our work and gets in the way of working faithfully and how Christ came to restore work to what it should be so we can do our work with both excellence and enjoyment. So where does the story of work begin? Well, in the beginning, of course, in Genesis chapter 1. Like everything else, it begins with the creation account. It begins in the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Note that God created, God made, God worked. It's one of the first things we learn about God, that he is a creator, that he is a speaker, and yes, he is a worker. And as we go through Genesis chapter 1, we see there is a pattern to God's work of creation. God, the worker, works according to a certain pattern. And I won't go into all the patterns that you can find there in Genesis chapter 1. That's for another day. But I'll give you the big picture there in Genesis chapter 1. If you look at the six days of creation, you see God bringing order and structure and glory and beauty into his world. In the beginning, the earth was formless and empty and dark. And God sets it out over the six days of creation, solving these problems, so to speak. There's no evil yet in the creation. But God is going to form his formless world. He's going to fill his empty world. He's going to lighten or glorify his dark world. During the four, first three days of the creation week, God forms the earth. He forms various environments. During the next three days, God fills the earth. He fills those various environments with creatures suitable to them. And then on the seventh day, God takes pleasure in a job well done in what we might call a glorious Sabbath celebration. You move into Genesis 2, which really gives us a more detailed account of day six of the creation week, especially the creation of man and woman. Genesis chapter 2, we find that God uh, continues his work. We might even say that God there becomes the first manual laborer, as it were, working with his hands, planting a garden in the dirt, forming a man out of the dirt. Now, this is what you need to see. There is a connection between who God is as a worker and who we are as creatures made in, in his image. We're to be workers as well. Because God is a worker and because man is made in God's image, man is a worker as well. Man was made to work. Now, he wasn't made to work himself to death. There's Sabbath there too. And the Bible doesn't really say anything about work-life balance. In the Bible, the contrast is not between work and the rest of life so much as it is between work and and Sabbath, work, and rest. But it's clear from the very beginning, God made man to be a worker. What does it mean to be imago dei, to be made in the image of God? Well, among other things, it, may, it means we are made to work. We are made in the image of the working God. And more than that, what you see happening in Genesis 1 and 2, God has formed and filled and glorified his creation. He's brought it to a certain point, And then he hands creation over to man and he says now you take it from here I've spent six days bringing my creation from glory one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory now I'm handing it over to you I want you to continue this process God hands creation over to man and it's like we become God's vice regents or God's subcontractors and we're to continue this work of forming and filling and glorifying God's world we're not creators the way God is but we are sub-creators we don't work in just the same way God does, obviously. We can't make things the way God does. 
But at a creaturely level, we very much are makers, builders, formers, fillers. This is the human project from the very beginning. We are to continue this work of forming and filling and glorifying God's world. We're to till the earth, even as God did in the beginning with the Garden of Eden. This is what it means to be made in God's image. This is really what the so-called creation mandate is all about. The creation mandate is that passage in Genesis 1, 26 to, to 28 or so, where God describes his fundamental purpose for humanity, his fundamental purpose for man. He's made man male and female in his image, but what does this mean? How will our humanity, our image-bearing work itself out? Well, man is made to have dominion over the earth, to rule it and subdue it. That's what we learn there, that man is to order God's world and develop it. Man is to cultivate the creation, turning creation into culture. And of course, along with this, Genesis 1 also says man is to be fruitful and multiply. He is to fill the earth with image bearers. So the mandate really has two sides. The work side, take dominion, rule over the earth. And then this other side, multiplying and filling the earth, being fruitful. Those are the two sides of the creation mandate. But what do you see here? What does this have to do with our work? Well, we see here man was created to work. And our work is rooted in the creation and so we can say to reject work is dehumanizing. Anytime we reject work that God has called us to, we are sacrificing our humanity. We are dehumanizing ourselves. God made man to be his steward, his vice regent. Work dignifies human life because it links us to the working God. We work in imitation of the God who works. Further, in Genesis 2, God specifies Adam's mission. Remember, Adam was made first and then the woman a bit later on the sixth day of creation. In Genesis 2, God specifies Adam's mission. He has to work and guard the garden. That's what God says. God makes the man and puts him in the garden and says, now you work this garden and you guard this garden. You make it product productive and you protect it. That's your purpose, Adam, to make this garden productive and to protect it. And of course, this falls under these duties, these responsibilities described in Genesis 2. These fall under that larger calling of ruling and filling the earth already given to the human race in Genesis chapter 1. But of course, Adam learns very quickly. We learn as we read in Genesis 2. Adam could not rule and fill on his own. He needed someone to protect and provide for. And he needed a helper if he was going to rule and fill the earth. And so what does God do? Well, God gives the man, Adam, a woman, a wife, to be his helper. Certainly he will cultivate and guard her now. She is the embodiment of the Garden of Eden. He's going to protect and provide for her now as well as the garden. And she will join him as a partner in fulfilling this creation mandate, forming and filling the creation. So man's work, again, is imitative. Every legitimate act of work in some way imitates God's original work of creation. Man is God's apprentice. Man learns from his God, from his creator, that he is to be a worker. And man's work fulfills this original mission God gave to man. We are God's workmanship, and therefore we are workers ourselves. God made us to be makers. Work is intrinsic to human life. It's part of what gives human life its direction, 
its purpose, its meaning. And without work, life loses meaning and purpose. Note here that work predates the fall. It's part of God's good creation in the beginning. When God looks at all he has made and declares it very good, that includes the vocation of man to be a worker. See, in the beginning, work is not a punishment, it's a blessing. Productive work fulfills man's purpose. The human mission is anchored to work, to labor. This means, just to to work this out a little bit for you, this means that for Adam and his wife in the garden, there was no secular sacred distinction. Adam and his wife knew nothing of a secular sacred distinction in life. It is true they could distinguish worship in the sanctuary garden of Eden from activities done in the land of Eden and the lands outside of Eden. They could distinguish worship as a special event distinct from the rest of life. There were different zones of life with different types of work. But all work, whether in the sanctuary or outside of the sanctuary, was to be a form of worship. All of life was integrated for Adam and his bride. It was all tied together by worship. Special worship, the special worship that would take place in the Garden of Eden, but the the more general worship that was to permeate the whole of their lives. All of life was to be offered as a kind of sacrifice to God. But in Genesis 3, we know that man's work went awry. Adam and his wife sinned against God. They rebelled against God's design for them. And as a result, they could no longer fulfill the creation mandate as God intended. Oh, yes, they would still work, but now they would work against God instead of with God and for God. After sin enters the creation through Adam and Eve's rebellion, what happens? Well, immediately in Genesis 3, we find that they are ashamed of their nakedness. Before they were naked and unashamed, now they're ashamed of their nakedness. So what do they do? They make for themselves clothing out of fig leaves. They make for themselves clothing out of fig leaves. The first thing scripture records man making is a covering so he can hide himself from God, so he can hide his shame. And so many of the things we make in this fallen world, we make for precisely this purpose. We're trying to hide our shame. We're trying to hide ourselves from God. It's the first human artifact. The first thing Adam and his wife make is a covering to hide themselves from God. Instead of offering their work to God, they use their work to hide themselves from God, to hide themselves from God's judgment. Of course, that doesn't work. God sees through their fig leaves, and so God makes for them more fitting coverings from animal skins, which of course require the shedding of blood, which shows there will be a sacrifice ultimately to cover their sin, to cover their shame, that God will have to make that sacrifice. Later in Genesis 3, we find the man and the woman are cursed in the areas where their primary work takes place. The curses land on the man and the woman, you might say, in sex-specific ways. The man's work in the world will be, uh, now he'll have to contend with the curse as he works in the world. He's going to have to contend with thorns and thistles that will get in the way of his work. So man will still be a worker, But now his work is going to take place in a wilderness with thorns and thistles rather than in a garden. Work just got a whole lot harder for the man. And the woman's work in the home, bearing and rearing children, she'll have to contend with the curse there in the form of great pain 
not just in child-bearing, but even in child-rearing. And so the man and the woman experience these curses. From Genesis 3 on, we have experienced and lived with these curses. Genesis 3 explains why work, whether the work is done in the world or in the home, why that work is full of frustration and hardship. It's because our callings have been impacted by the curse of sin. Now what happens is you continue, continue in this story of work in scriptures, you continue in Genesis, what happens? Well, we see man continuing to work now in rebellion against God. Cain kills his brother, Abel, and then he builds a city that obviously involved work. He built the city on the sacrifice of his slain brother. Cain is a creator, but he creates an anti-God civilization. He builds a city, but it's the city of man, not the city of God. Work and worship, which were once integrated, integrated before the fall, now there's been disintegration. Work and worship have been separated, and both have been turned against the living God. Man now works against God, and man worships idols. Cain's descendants continue to take dominion. They rule and subdue the earth, but they do so in wicked ways, in rebellion against God. Cain's descendants develop animal husbandry, music, musical instruments, mining, metalworking, toolmaking. Genesis 4 records all of this, but they don't develop their musical instruments. They don't make musical instruments so they can worship God. They don't raise animals so they can sacrifice them in worship to the Lord. They don't use their tools to build a place of worship for the Lord. No, they use all of these tools of dominion, so to speak. All of their labors are dead set against serving God. They produce all of these things, but they use them to build their own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And of course, this leads, leads to strife and Violence and the world becomes filled with wickedness. Man takes dominion, but he does so in a wicked way. And so what does God do? As the wickedness of man grows to, to fill the earth in this kind of perverse fulfillment of the dominion mandate, this, this anti-fulfillment of the dominion mandate, what happens? God threatens to destroy the whole creation with a flood. Just as the earth was covered with water in the beginning, God threatens to cover the earth with water Again, the earth will go back to being formless and empty. One man stands out. One man who works, who will work as a shipbuilder, we could say as a carpenter, as a zookeeper. This one man will be spared along with his family. Noah got to work. God said, I'm going to flood the earth. No, I want you to get to work building an ark that will house you and your family and the animals to bring them to safety on the other side of this judgment. And what does Noah do? Noah builds this ark according to God's command. Noah gets to work just as God had commanded him. Genesis 6 emphasizes this. Noah worked according to God's design. He built according to God's design. He took dominion and ruled over the earth. He took dominion over gopher wood and over pitch. He ruled the animals God brought to him to board the ark. He was a new and faithful Adam, a wise master craftsman, showing us that God's purposes for man will continue in spite of man's great rebellion. 
There's a lot of other passages in Genesis we could go to that, that speak to this issue of work. But let me jump ahead to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Bezalel is a worker granted wisdom by God's spirit to shape wood and stone and precious metals into objects of glory and beauty to be used in the worship of God. Bezalel is a wise worker. In Bezalel, wisdom and work are fused back together. So Bezalel builds objects of beauty and glory to be used in the tabernacle for the worship of God. Bezalel shows us that work is a key way that we grow and mature in wisdom. Bezalel is given wisdom by God that feeds into his work, and no doubt as he worked with these objects of wood and stone and these precious metals, he grew in wisdom as well. He came to understand this is how God made the world. This is the nature that these objects have, the properties these different types of objects have. And he becomes this great master craftsman. He does his work with skill, with excellence, with enjoyment. Skip further ahead in the biblical story. Skip ahead to Solomon. Solomon is another model worker. He oversees this massive construction project. He builds a temple, a house for God, and he does so according to God's blueprint, the heavenly blueprint. He builds according to God's instructions. He builds a house for God. Not only that, but we find that Solomon investigated the world. He was a kind of scientist, if you will. He investigated the world and he amassed great wisdom. Wisdom about human life and animal life. Wisdom about the way God designed the creation. Wisdom about reality. That's really what wisdom is. Wisdom is being in tune with reality, with the way God made the world. It means you're going with the grain of creation. Solomon models that for us, at least until his apostasy. Solomon, of course, wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, puts these wisdom books together. And what's interesting is these two books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, deal extensively with work. In fact, they're really both about the creation mandate. In Proverbs, it is a father passing along wisdom to his son, the king passing along wisdom to the young prince. What does he need wisdom about? Well, basically two things. It really comes down to two things, his wife and his work. Because those are the two things, those are the two ingredients in the dominion mandate. To rule over the earth, that's work. To be fruitful, multiply, that's marriage. Okay, the man's mission and his marriage, his work and his wife. That's what Proverbs is about. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this constant refrain Solomon has where he talks about how in the face of the vanity, or really the vapor is a better reading, in the face of this vaporous nature of life, what's the best thing for man to do is to enjoy his wife and his work. To, to love his wife and to enjoy life with her and to enjoy his labor, his toilsome labor under the sun. Ecclesiastes is about the fulfillment of this dominion mandate, this creation mandate. It's about the man's work and his wife and how he can enjoy them both as great blessings of God, even in this fallen, vaporous world. Proverbs especially has a lot to teach us about work. And Proverbs really stresses the importance of a work ethic, working with competence. It brings together skills and virtues. Those are really the two ingredients in a work ethic. That we must work hard, we must be diligent, that's the virtue, and then we must do our work with excellence, that's the skill or the competency. Proverbs stresses the importance of both. Proverbs shows us work is a way to pursue moral and vocational maturity. The wise 
son, as he grows into a man, how is he going to show his wisdom? Well, this is part of it, by pursuing work, being diligent in his work, but also doing that work with excellence. The virtues and the skills, they go together. They're to be fused together in the work that the young man does. Proverbs is a book about maturation. It's about wisdom. Wisdom that both feeds into our work and grows out of our work. You need wisdom to work well, but as you do your work well, you grow in wisdom. You grow in your understanding of reality and how God made the world. Of course, all of that is contrasted with the fool who is identified, as far as work goes, he's identified as the sluggard. His foolishness is seen in his refusal to work. And in his laziness, in his slothfulness, this the, 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 the sluggard, because of his vices, because of his refusal to work, This leads to his poverty. It leads to his ruin. It's an anti-wisdom, foolish way to live. That's identified in Proverbs as well with the sluggard. Now I'm going to come back next week and look a lot more at the wisdom that is found in the book of Proverbs, wisdom about work. Some of the most familiar and famous passages in Proverbs concern work. Again, Proverbs is a book about the dominion mandate, how to rule and fill the earth wisely, how to work with wisdom, and how to resist the foolish rejection of work. We'll come back and look at that more next week. But what if we continue in this story, looking at the Bible's story of work, what if we jump ahead, what if we continue this story, and what if we jump ahead to the new covenant? What do we see there? Well, what do we find in the new covenant scriptures? Well, we see Jesus is a worker, The whole new covenant is about Jesus, how Jesus came to fulfill God's promises, God's purposes for the creation, for humanity. We find Jesus is a worker. In fact, Jesus grew up the son of a carpenter, apprenticing for his father, Joseph, and then working as a carpenter himself. Before beginning his messianic ministry, Jesus worked as a carpenter. He worked with his hands. When we consider the life of Jesus, don't just jump from the cradle to the cross. Don't even jump from the beginning of Jesus' life, from from his birth, to the beginning of his ministry. No, actually, what happens in between his birth and the ministry that he starts at, at 30 years of age, what happens in between is important. Don't forget about that phase of Jesus' life. Don't forget about the carpenter's shop. Think about this. The same hands that had nails driven through them into wood, drove nails into wood for many years before that. Before he had his hands nailed to wood, he was nailing wood together with nails as a carpenter. In Mark chapter 6, when Jesus preaches in his hometown of Nazareth, the people there were astonished at his teaching And ultimately offended by his teaching. But they asked the question, they said, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? They identified Jesus by his work. The work he had grown up doing. Men are always identified by the jobs they do. This is just how it is for men. We're identified by the work we do and so it is with Jesus. He is identified by the work he has spent most of his life doing up to this point his work as a carpenter. Before he became known as a teacher and as Messiah, he was known as a carpenter. They were used to his hands 
building furniture, perhaps. They were used to his hands building furniture, not performing miracles. And that's why they asked these questions. This is so hugely important to our understanding of work. Before Jesus began his messianic work, he worked with his hands as a manual laborer. Get that. Scripture shows us that. It's so important. Listen, if you demean work, particularly if you demean those who work with their hands, if you demean manual laborers, you are insulting Jesus himself. There are a lot of people in our culture, especially among the so-called elite class, they're really not elite, that's part of our problem, but there are many people in our culture who hold the blue-collar working class types in contempt. But let me tell you, Jesus was one of those people. He grew up a blue-collar working man working with his hands. You know, it really, really bugs me. You know, when a certain class of jobs or workers, you see this happen in the media a lot, a certain class of jobs or workers will be referred to as low-skilled labor or unskilled labor. The reality is 98% of the people who talk that way couldn't do the jobs they're talking about. They call these jobs low-skilled, and they couldn't do that kind of work themselves. See, this is what's so interesting to me. Jesus spends a good chunk of his life working as a carpenter, and then he begins his messianic work as Messiah, his teaching ministry, his miracles, and of course, ultimately, he's going to go and die on the cross because that's, that's his mission. His mission shifts from being a carpenter, building tables, to being the Messiah who's going to build a kingdom, build a church. But here's the point. Both phases of Jesus' life matter Both phases of Jesus' life show us something important about what it means to be human and how the dominion mandate, the creation mandate, comes to fulfillment. The the point is this. Whether you wear a blue collar, a white collar, or a clergy collar, your work is to be offered up to God as a sacrifice of praise. And this means you can turn the office cubicle into a most holy place. Isn't it interesting? We refer to office spaces now as cubicles when the most holy place had a cube shape to it. You can turn the office cubicle into a holy place. You can turn the workshop into a most holy place. You can turn your desk into an altar. That's how Charles Spurgeon described it. He said, to a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular and everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal, and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor, and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense, and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say, this is sacred and this is secular, is, to my mind, diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. Spurgeon there is not flattening out the difference. He's not saying literally every meal you have is just like the Lord's Supper. But he's saying for the man or the woman who is seeking to be holy and who wants his whole life to be an offering to God, yes, there is a very real sense in which God is present with you in all that you do, a very real sense in which all of your life has this sacred or holy meaning. Your life becomes a sacrifice offered to God. 
There is no secular, sacred divide for the Christian. If you try to divide work into secular and sacred, what do you do with the first 30 years of Jesus' life? When he was a carpenter, when he was a manual laborer, was that not holy work? Was Jesus only engaging in secular work? Was that work not meaningful or pleasing to his heavenly father as he imitated his earthly father in doing this work? Again, away with those thoughts, that way of thinking. Think about what John the Baptist, again, here we're in the New Covenant, the New Covenant story of work. Think about what John the Baptist said to those who came to him when he was announcing the arrival of the Messiah and proclaiming repentance because the kingdom of God is arriving. Different types of workers came to him and cried out to John, what shall we do? Tax collectors came. And he didn't tell the tax collectors to quit their job. He didn't tell them to you know, quit your job as a tax collector, go to seminary, go into full-time ministry. No, he says, do your job justly. Continue to work as a tax collector, but take no more than is authorized. Roman soldiers came to him, and he doesn't say, hey, drop your swords and your weapons and go become missionaries. No, instead he tells them, don't use your force of arms to intimidate people or extort people. Be content with your wages. In other words, continue serving as a soldier. Fill that same office, fill that same job, but now do it in a different way. These are instructions to people who are living on the brink of God's inbreaking kingdom. And John is telling them to not leave their so-called secular occupations, but to fill those occupations faithfully. To fill those occupations with excellence, with righteousness, with virtue. The gospel does not take us out of our jobs. It restores us and redirects us so we can fill those jobs faithfully and wisely. The gospel restores work and it restores man as a worker. Man made in God's image, now remade in Christ's image. Man as an image bearer and therefore a worker. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul describes our jobs as callings or vocations. That's especially why we Christians use this kind of language, because of 1 Corinthians 7. Because that's how Paul describes our work there in 1 Corinthians 7. Of course, your vocation is really much more than just your daily job. Your vocation is the sum total of the roles and responsibilities God has assigned to you in the home, in the church, and in the culture. In 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul says, Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him in which God has called him. God has assigned to you a piece of the creation, a little domain that you are called to form and fill and glorify. He assigns you a little piece of, of the creation and he says, you're the steward here. You're the Adam. This is your garden. Tend to it. Cultivate it. Form it. Fill it. Lighten it with my truth, my beauty, my goodness. You know, maybe a, a, a mom who's changing diapers and homeschooling her kids. It may be as a lawyer arguing cases before a judge and jury. Maybe in politics or media or banking or medicine or insurance or plumbing. God has assigned to you your daily labors, your daily work. That is part of your calling. God has given you a miniature world to conquer. A miniature world to order, to rule, to cultivate, to subdue. And that work matters. It matters now and it matters for eternity. In giving you this little world to rule, God has invested in you and he wants a return on that investment. 
God rules the world. But God, in part, rules the world through us, through his people. God brings in his kingdom, but God advances and grows his kingdom largely through us. And God wants us to leave the world a better place than we found it. Through our lives, God wants to bring more and more truth, goodness, and beauty into the world. Through us, God wants to bring glory and light and wisdom more and more into the world. So the world's a better place when you leave it than it was when you came into it. That's your calling. Now, the church has not always had this view of work. The church has not always upheld this view of work. In the centuries before the Reformation, there was definitely a hierarchy. If you were spiritual, if you were really serious about the faith, you would forsake family life, you would forsake the business world, you would give up on the world of commerce and industry, and you would go become a priest or a monk or a nun. The Reformers liberated the church from that kind of nonsense. All of life was baptized. All of life can now be consecrated to God as a holy sacrifice. Martin Luther said, a cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops, and everyone by means of his own work or office must benefit and serve every other, that in this way many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, even as all the members of the body serve one another. Luther said, whatever work God calls you to, it's consecrated. It's to be devoted to him. John Calvin described our callings as the sentry posts the Lord has assigned us to keep us from wandering aimlessly through life. He said, it's like the Lord is your commander in chief and you are a soldier in your army and he has given you tasks. He has assigned you various responsibilities and you're to do them righteously and faithfully and as you do so, you are waging war on the kingdom of darkness and bringing in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, his kingdom of light and love. As you fulfill your vocation each day, you're waging war against the principalities and the powers. When we do our work well, understanding God has called us to it and equipped us for it, when we understand our work as a form of worship, it really becomes the liturgy after the liturgy. Our work is done in Christ and for Christ and through Christ. Our work is an act of service and love to God and to our neighbors. And in this way, we can know we are fulfilling our mission and purpose in life. We can know that when we fall into bed after putting in a hard day's labor, that God is pleased with us. That God can say about our day, even he said about each creation day, his own work, God can say, it's good. God can say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that brings us to perhaps the finest summary we have of the Bible's teaching on work. I'll close with this, Colossians 3. What does Paul do in Colossians 3? It's as if he takes the Bible's whole story about work, all of this teaching, all of this wisdom about work, and he distills it into just two or three verses, two or three tightly compacted verses where he shows us the true value and the meaning of work. He's actually speaking to slaves in the wider context. If you go back and look at verse 22, he tells slaves to obey their masters in a sincere and God-fearing way. But then in verse 23, when he goes on to unpack this further, I think he's really extending the application to everyone. This is Paul's teaching on work. And he says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not to men. See, you're not just working for a paycheck. 
You're not just working to please your boss. The reality is a lot of the most important work done in the world does not come with a paycheck. You know, just talk to a mother who's raising kids. The work is incredibly valuable, but there's no pay attached. Pay has nothing to do with the value of the work. All your pay tells you is what the market thinks your work is worth, not what God thinks your work is worth. Whatever you're doing, Paul says, do it heartily. Give yourself totally to the task at hand. Do it with excellence. Work hard and work well. He says, because you are ultimately answering not to an earthly boss or master, but to a heavenly Lord. Paul is saying here, turn your work into worship. No matter how trivial the work might seem, no matter how cruel or unreasonable your boss or your manager might be, you can know that your work serves your heavenly Father. And so as Paul goes on to say, an eternal inheritance is promised to you, a great reward. This reward goes far beyond any kind of earthly compensation we might receive for our work. It is the ultimate compensation for the work that we do. Whatever benefits your work might bring to you in this life, it's nothing compared to this ultimate compensation of God's reward of your work. Your work in some way produces an eternal reward. Even your ordinary, earthly, mundane work, that work, as you do it cheerfully, faithfully, skillfully, what are you doing? You are stockpiling treasure in heaven. You are stockpiling an inheritance in heaven. And not only that, but you can know that your work in some way is contributing to the building of the final new Jerusalem, the kingdom in its final and glorious resurrection form. In Revelation 14, when John has this vision, he talks about those who die in the Lord. He says, as they go to be with the Lord, resting from their labors, he says, their works follow them. Their works will be incorporated into God's final new creation. That's the picture we have in Scripture. That's the story Scripture tells about work. It is a glorious picture, a glorious story. So it's Sunday, but tomorrow will be Monday morning, which means back to work, back to school, back to the tasks at hand. But if you understand this story, this story of work, and live in light of it, you can look forward to that work, knowing that your work Whatever earthly benefits it might bring, there is ultimately a heavenly reward promised. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The Lord will make the works of your hands to stand forever. The Lord will reward your labors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.